Here we go. Rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition, as we do every week, a long form interview with all sorts of folks who have touched the NBA in all sorts of ways. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, out West, Adam Stanko, our guest today has been around college hoops for 30 plus years. Was the former head coach at UCLA and St. John's, eight NCAA tournament appearances, five trips to the Sweet 16, an Elite Eight appearance. 16 players went on to be NBA draft picks. And 20 years ago, he was the Pac-10 Coach of the Year. He's Steve Lavin. Coach, what's the wildest high school scene that you ever recruited in? I'd say in Philadelphia, Reishi Jordan would be at the top of the list. Uh, Baron Davis in you know Southern California, his senior year was a big attraction. And so uh, following, you know, his games and his team uh, definitely was, you know, compelling and, and uh, an interesting, memorable experience. But I think Rishi Jordan uh, would be at the top of the list. I mean, uh, there were thousands of fans being turned away. Uh, they were outside of uh, these high school gyms that he would play in. And uh, he was that big of a ticket um, in Philadelphia. He was attacked Black Jesus, which uh, gives you an idea of how well thought of he was uh, in Philadelphia. And um, so to get in, to see him play, and to see the appreciation that fans in Philadelphia had for Rashid was pretty remarkable. And they had been following you know, his career since he was seventh, eighth grade. He was just one of those players that as each year went by, uh, there was a bigger following and more interest uh, in his career. You mentioned Baron Davis. Obviously, he was one of the marquee names in, in high school basketball that year, but you're also at the same time recruiting Earl Watson, who also goes on to have a, a terrific NBA career. As you're recruiting the both of them, and I've talked to Earl about, about some of this, how do you convince those two guys who are both lead guard superstars at the high school level to come to come play in UCLA and be part of the same backcourt. You know, it's interesting that team uh, out of Kansas City had you know Corey McGetty, who ended up going on to Duke, Mike Miller, uh, who went to Florida, Jerron Rush, uh, who came to UCLA, uh, Earl Watson. I think Kareem Rush may have been a freshman on that team as well. Corleone Young, who was one of the higher rated players in the country. They were all competing on that team. And initially, uh, we were in pursuit of Jerron Rush, who was younger than Earl, younger than Barron. And in the pursuit of Jerron, uh, I became more and more impressed with this kid named Earl Watson, uh, who wasn't on the you know top list of the supposed recruiting experts. And, but his toughness, and uh, his ability to see the game, think the game, uh, underrated athleticism because he would do some things in the court, like go up and, you know, pin someone shot on the backboard uh, in terms of getting a block and a rebound, coming down at the same time, and then push it the other direction. So there was, you know, a level of athleticism, but uh, he was still kind of growing into his feet. Uh, he had really big feet. And so um, a late developer, a late bloomer, but he 
really made that team go, even though, you know, the hype was Mike Miller, Corey McGetty, Jerron Rush, Corleone Young. Earl was that understated player, a little bit going way back to like Maurice Cheeks with those great 76er teams. Uh, Maurice Cheeks was the understated player who set the table uh, for all those superstars with the 76ers. So Earl on a high school level reminded me of that Maurice Cheeks. And so that led to having conversations with Earl. And I really felt, you know, for the first time I saw him play that he had the potential to be someone that could have a long career in basketball uh, after college. And so once we, you know, developed a relationship with Earl, uh, that went a long way to helping us secure Jerron Rush. And with the recruiting momentum uh, of that era at UCLA, a bear and being in my backyard, you know, the highest profile recruit at the time that we were in pursuit of. And Earl and Barron had played against each other on the circuit and also been at the Nike camp together. And so Barron was in our offices, you know, being a Southern California product. Uh, he was coming up during the summertime and playing at the open gym with Magic Johnson and all our UCLA players, all the NBA players that came back during the summer. And uh, Barron would be coming into you know, the Morgan Center and Poly Pavilion and the men's gym and was, you know, uh, on Bruin Walk. And, and so he was very comfortable uh, in high school on the UCLA campus. So I think it just became a natural. And uh, the way we played, we had, you know, interchangeable parts on the perimeter. Um, and a lot of people at that time were beginning to go that way, the small ball approach. You know, we had frontline players, obviously, with good size, like Jelani McCoy and J.R. Henderson. But uh, we would go with multiple guards, multiple point guards on the floor. So uh, thankfully it just came together, and those two were the ones that helped drive that class because once we had Baron and Earl, that helped start to get other pieces in play. Uh, Dan Kutzerik and Jerome Moiso and Matt Barnes and Jerron Rush, Ray Young in that following class. Uh, but Baron and Earl, and people forget we signed Shea Cotton as well, uh, but there were some issues with eligibility. So, you know, mm -hmm. he came to campus, was in a team photo, but ultimately ended up uh, transferring out uh, because of uh, something to do with the academic side of things. But uh, that was, was quite a class. Those famous UCLA runs, what was your first wow experience? Well, you know, we would only see them kind of after they played or as they were gathering prior to going into the men's gym uh, for those runs because of the number of rules in terms of when you're able to watch prospects. And, uh, but we get the reports. And what I remember most about Barrett was, you know, playing at Long Beach, Izzy Slam and Jam, and just watching him on the circuit, even more so when he was younger. You know, his sophomore year, um, he was more of a peanut. He was like a tiny Archibald. And it he was diminutive, and it's hard to imagine that now because he grew into such a stout athlete with the broad shoulders and the running back kind of build. Um, but when he was early in high school, he was this small, diminutive player that had ridiculous skills and like a shell game, uh, just had such tight handles and did such creative things, and his vision was exceptional, and the surgical passing, but the change of pace, the change of direction,
just off the hinges, creativity. And so I remember getting licorice and popcorn and a diet soda. You know, you're watching some of these teams play two or even three times in one day. And uh, there are some games you watch and, you know, one game blurs into the other. There's nothing significant or memorable about the game. But you're there because you're recruiting and you're staying on the grind. you got to show your presence and your interest to these prospects. But when Barron stepped on the court, there was just a palpable buzz or energy. And uh, from a coach's standpoint, you know, I remember Lorenzo and I sitting in the stands and just chuckling because he couldn't help uh, but get a kick out of, you know, how entertaining, how creative, how special, how gifted this kid Barron Davis was. And uh, obviously, we continue to see that throughout his career. But I think if he doesn't hurt his knee in the second-round game against Michigan in 1998 uh, in Atlanta, I think it was the uh, Georgia Dome, I think, you know, he's even more. I mean, he already was an all-star in a 13-year career in the NBA and earned probably $150 million throughout his career. But, you know, I think he would have been in a different stratosphere uh, if he didn't have that knee injury. Hey, Adam, you like football? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like that old David Letterman. Hey, uh, <laughs> got any books on football? Hey, you like you like the turkey? Glad you're dating yourself now. <laughs> College football heads into bowl season. Can you actually even call it bowl season? It's like, no. no. We might get a bowl today. Uh, oh. It's bowl cancellation season. But either way. If the bowl game is played, you can bet on it. NFL season, regular season, they've played a game every they've played a, a game every day during this season. It's wild. Like they've had a game on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Hmm. And now we got the playoffs coming up. To make your bets, there's only one place that we trust. That's betonline.ag. You can sign up for a free account at betonline.ag and you can use the promo code Locked on, L-O-C-K-E-D, on for your 50% welcome bonus. And when it comes to college football, I know you can't talk about the betting angle of these things because of your current employment, but I kind of like Alabama even giving 19 and a half to Notre Dame. Mm. And then if you look ahead to if it's Alabama-Clemson, Clemson's getting four and a half. Mm. I might take Clemson getting four and a half early, mm. but that's just me. And I haven't paid as much attention to college football as I have in the past. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. Get in on the action. Don't forget to use the promo code locked on L O C K E D on locked on all one word. Receive that 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit bet online, your online sports book experts. Betting on the NBA doesn't have to be a guessing game because we've got a podcast for it. Locked on Bets, the podcast mm. hosted by your boy Q and the handicapping expert Lee Sterling. You might think you know what to do when it comes to betting, but more than likely you don't. So just listen to these guys and then follow the picks. Get daily picks, quick hitting advice to make the smartest possible wagers. You need information. They've got it. Subscribe to the Locked On Bets podcast brought to you by betonline.ag, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm curious, your your ascension, obviously, to UCLA was so quick in 
in relative terms, obviously you were a basketball junkie and you were part of staff with Purdue and then you came to UCLA. I just mean in terms of going up the ladder as to be a head coach once you got to UCLA. I'm curious, all of a sudden you go from being a lower level assistant and then in a year's time now, you're now on the recruiting trail as the face of the UCLA program, having to go after some of the top tier players in the country. How did you know how to recruit and what to say, how to build those relationships? How, how did you know how to do that? And who taught you? Well, I think a combination. You're always, you know, taking notes, asking questions, observing the mentors, the people in the business that you respect. But you're correct in my experience was in game preparation, in, you know, working with the defense, um, player development, uh, academics, you know, study hall. And uh, that was a plus because I think sometimes, you know, assistants are responsible for recruiting and they get typecast and they get pigeonholed and they're not able to really learn the craft and don't get to spend as much time in the film room as I was able to with Purdue with great coaches and uh, just strong coaching staffs. And also given the freedom, I was fortunate that Coach Katie, not only at Purdue, but with the USA teams that he coached, uh, whether it was Colorado Springs or bringing the team back once it was down to 15 or 16 players to Purdue to practice before going over seas for international competition. He'd allow me um, to be in on the staff meetings with USA basketball and also with the players on the court, you know, so at a very young age, you know, working with the Christian Leitners, Robert Horries, the, uh, the Grant Hills, the, uh, the best in the game, uh, I was able to work with and to teach and to coach on the floor. And then Coach Eric also allowed me that responsibility uh, right from the get-go in terms of uh, helping build our defense and running the footwork drills at UCLA. So I think for me, the recruiting piece was more coming from a big family and being around the game and being most comfortable uh, when coaching. And it really was just about, you know, being interested in people and being curious and uh, that is what leads to developing a rapport and establishing trust and being yourself, you know, being authentic. I never had a sales pitch or a shtick. Uh, it was just about getting to know the prospect and his family, the extended family, the support group around him. And fortunately, I uh, was working at really good schools when you look at Purdue UCLA and St. John's, the history of basketball, those three are elite programs. And so uh, the proof's in the pudding and really it's just framing the argument and framing the positives of those respective schools and amplifying uh, what's real. So there doesn't have to be a carnival barker, car salesman element to it. Um, UCLA is really special. If you can't see it, I'll help you by shining a light on certain aspects in terms of the academics, the tradition, the style of play, uh, being in Los Angeles, all the advantages of attending UCLA. And we'll show you the beach as well, um, show you the Hollywood Hills and, and uh, you know, amplify what's special uh, 
go to win and the standard of excellence that he set. And if you come to UCLA, you play a part in that second to none tradition. Uh, but Purdue, people forget, is the winningest program in the history of the Big Ten. And St. John's, you know, top 10 in the history of basketball in every category, other than the national championships. But they had the NIT championships when the NIT was bigger than the NCAA, mm -hmm. going back to the 30s and 40s and 50s. And, of course, three Hall of Fame coaches back there with Lapchek and McGuire and Karnaseka. So um, a lot of our recruiting success had to do with just being yourself, being authentic, put good staff together, and being able to present at those respective schools. And each is different. Uh, you know, what's attractive and why we feel a particular prospect could be a good fit with our basketball family. And more often than not, we're able to convince or persuade or have those prospects uh, see, you know, the same vision that we had. And then collectively, that's what leads to it being a good fit or marriage in terms of coming to one of those respective programs. With that being said, how did it work with you encouraging Bob Myers to try out? Well, that's interesting. You know, Bob Myers, back to relationships, and this is the case in all industries in life. I knew his high school coach, Jeff Corey, outstanding coach of Monte Vista High School. And I met him at a Mike Krzyzewski clinic. It was those two or three-minute clinics you would have. Uh, Duke had just won the national championship, so it must have been 1991 that summer. Went back to Durham and was with Jeff Corey, another coach named Mike Lagarza, and myself. And you stayed in the dorms at that time, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe it was a hotel right off of campus. And then the clinics were held at Cameron Indoor Stadium. It basically was a couple days with Duke staff breaking down basketball, talking mm -hmm. philosophy and, and their approach. And through that experience, developed a friendship with Jeff Corey and Michael Garza. And now a year or so later, Jeff Corey calls, says, I have this player named Bob Myers, who's been accepted at UCLA. He held his own against Mark Matson, who was at San Ramon High School, played for another great coach, John Rayner. And I'm from the Bay Area in San Francisco, so I have a good feel for Northern California basketball. I've been raised in that area of the state. So we set up a meeting. Bob's father comes down with Bob, and I think it was a Sunday night when they came in the J.T. Morgan Center, the athletic department, and I was an assistant at the time. And I uh, get to meet Bob and his father. It turned out that Bob, six degrees of separation again, Bob's father had attended Purdue. And he saw in my office the, you know, Purdue memorabilia, uh, Coach Katie and uh, some team photographs, and, uh, pictures with Coach Wood when he was visiting Purdue. And uh, so good conversation. But Bob, I could tell, didn't really grasp that we felt he could help us, you know, by being a, a walk-on, a practice player. And then who knows? Because once you get a foot in the door, uh, things happen. And uh, so he really was trying to direct the conversation to intramurals. If there was an intramural office uh, that he could visit because he <laughs> wanted to stay in shape and play different sports. And then he also was asking about the crew team uh, and just from a, you know, staying in, in good shape again, maybe considering trying out for the crew team. And uh, I had to kind of come back, reemphasize like, hey, I don't think you're going to have time for the intramurals or crew, you know, this is a full-time kind of commitment. If you walk on and play basketball at UCLA, 
walks on, does well. Uh, we win the national title in 95. I love to tell the story uh, like a Forrest Gump. You know, he's in the White House with Bill Clinton. He's on the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. He's taking the trip to Disneyland. There's championship teams do. There's parades. They raise the banner of Polly with the packed house. Uh, you know, following that championship season. He's on the cover of Sports Illustrated holding Tyus Edney mm -hmm. after that game when he shot against Missouri. And uh, I become the head coach. He ends up working for Arntello, who was my representative at the time, because I got to know Arntello and Jerry West, and a sitcom writer named Ed Weinberger, and a real estate successful real estate uh, agent named Steven Shapiro. And I used to work their children out because my first year at UCLA, I was a volunteer assistant. So I had to hustle and make money through my summer basketball camps in Northern California and then working out, you know, eight, nine, 10 year old kids uh, who lived in that Beverly Hills, Bel Air, Brentwood, Santa Monica area. And obviously it was ideal to work out Jerry West kid and Arn Tellum's kid because they knew uh, so much about the sport, about basketball, and about the Southern California sports landscape. And Steven Shapiro, because of his background in real estate, you know, taught me a lot in terms of that that realm uh, as it relates to Southern California. And then Ed Weinberg was just a fascinating sitcom writer. He'd written for Johnny Carson. He'd come from New York. I think he was a Columbia graduate of Columbia journalism or writing. Maybe it was screenwriting. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore, uh, hmm. Taxi. I mean, he had done some of the top, top shows. And so he was really a fascinating character and a good friend uh, as well. So, um, yeah, just a lot of kind of, you know, six degrees of, uh, of separation and, and uh, makes for kind of an interesting story. If I would ever do a book, uh, some of those characters would be in it. But Bob worked for Arntello during the summertime as an internship and then developed a real interest in it. And I ended up leaving him graduate, going to law school, becoming a partner with Arn, had a successful run, uh, you know, as an agent. And then this opportunity to go back home and uh, Jerry West, I think, plays a part in that as well. And I think he knew, uh, you know, the owners of the Warriors uh, from his, you know, time in the Bay Area and just, you know, part serendipity, but also uh, Bob's diligence, his hard work, and uh, being conscientious and having a good reputation. And uh, has obviously won a couple championships now with the Warriors. Coach, while you're at UCLA, of course, John Wooden casts such a, a large shadow over the entire program. What obviously you you um you you knew him before because he was a Purdue guy. You were a Purdue guy, but what what was your relationship like, and how often did you speak to him, meet with him? What did that look like as you were a head coach and he was the man in the background? Yeah, it's interesting because we have the prior experience of knowing one another from Purdue, and then during my assistant years. Um, spent a great amount of time with him at uh, different events and, and visiting his apartment in Encino and taking notes, asking questions. Um, and, you know, I wasn't aware at the time um, that, you know, he really was the most instrumental in 
how I become the head coach. Uh, because UCLA, when they fired Coach Herrick and I was moved up as an intern coach, uh, they began a national search. And, you know, so the assumption was, you know, it would be uh, Rick Pitino or Rick Majerus or a Tubby Smith or, you know, one of the coaches that was high profile and thriving uh, somewhere throughout the country. And that that's who they were going to hire. But uh, as the season went along, and uh, we had a rocky start uh, to our season, but then we started to pick up momentum and really had it humming to where I think they would win our last 12 games, uh, finished 15-3 and in the league, kind of won the Pac-10 that year going away, I think maybe by three or four games over uh, the second and third place teams. So, uh, but in early February uh, was the first time just in – you know, speaking with Coach Wooden, then I started to get a sense that I may become the head coach because he mentioned in a subtle way, but it was enough to know that that meant I was going to become the coach. And he'd say things like, you're going to be quite busy in the spring and the summer. Um, and I was like, well, wait a second, busy in the spring and the summer, you know, they're going to have another coach in here. So uh, not in a, you know, public way, uh, but there's no doubt that knowing Coach Wood from Purdue and that his advocacy uh, with Chuck Young, Pete Dallas, Pete Blackman, and Jim Milhorn, who had all been there or played for Coach Wood going back to the, the dynasty. So very fortunate um, and grateful uh, to have an advocate like Coach Wood. Obviously, there's no other explanation for why a 32-year-old coach uh, would take over the Bruins with no prior head coaching experience, uh, unless you have that blessing of Coach Wooden. So, mm -hmm. And then we also had strong personnel, and so I'm grateful that we had upperclassmen that had you know, participated in conference and a national championship run, because those players, the you know, J.R. Hendersons and Toby Bailey's and Cameron Dollars, Charles, Charles O'Bannon, uh, Chris Johnson and, and company, um, you know, without them performing at a high level, then I never had the opportunity uh, to become the head coach because we had to be doing well enough to have a coach who wouldn't advocate for you and, and winning the conference and going to the eight. That clearly helped. But we were hired, our staff, in mid-February. And I think we won 11 straight from that point on. Uh, but we were in first place. Uh, but still, it wasn't as though, you know, we had won the league or made the deep run of the tournament, and then we were hired. So they still did take uh, a risk, and uh, they believed, you know, that we could, you know, uh, have success, and that's what led to the seven years. Yeah, and I'm sure the conversations between you two were even more meaningful given your dad's years as an AP English teacher and, and John Wooden being an English teacher. And, and speaking of the, the written word and the spoken word, seeing your former players, a bunch of them in the media now in all sorts of different ways, whether it's in studio, hosting podcasts, calling games. When was the last time you heard one of your former players say something that made you say, come on, I, I taught you better than that. You know, it's interesting. Just 
the uh, sheer joy of having a number of players in different industries. It is, you know, interesting that, you know, John Crispin at ESPN and Sean Farn at ESPN uh, are, are thriving and Earl Watson uh, now doing so well in broadcasting. Uh, you know, Barron in the entrepreneurial filmmaking world and uh, Brian Morrison, who's in the music industry as a producer and Todd Ramasar as an agent. Uh, Josiah Johnson and Quinn Hawking, who worked for Comedy Central. Josiah right now coming up with some really original content, digital <laughs> platforms and social media platforms. So Matt Barnes, you know, crushing it as personality, both as a basketball analyst, uh, but also that All the Smoke uh, podcast with Steven Jackson, working with HBO. So, uh, yeah, I could go right down the list. Vince McGough is working uh, in a law firm up in the Bay Area, and we know about Bob, and uh, same thing with my St. John's guys. And there are, you know, also uh, some stories, which is inevitable, of, you know, young people that have had challenges. You know, not every story is like a Hollywood script with this wonderful finish. Uh, basketball and sport, you know, is a microcosm of the society at large. A sport that's ideal form should be a metaphor for life, but uh, the same problems that exist in terms of mental health and uh, the economy and, and what we're going through right now with this pandemic, uh, that has an effect. And so there are also some young people uh, from my years at Purdue, UCLA and St. John's that are struggling. And so you have to be there for them and do the best you can uh, within your ability to try and help those people as well uh, that didn't make 150 million in the NBA or don't have that NBA pension, uh, or they're not crushing it as a broadcaster uh, or in some form of entertainment or as an agent. And, uh, you know, you don't have to worry as much about those that are off and running with these great careers. It's the ones uh, that are struggling some that you have to be there for. When you need fantasy basketball advice, you could go anywhere but it's important to have a reliable source and more people trust Josh Lloyd host of locked on fantasy basketball than any other fantasy basketball podcast. It's the number one fantasy basketball podcast. So subscribe locked on fantasy basketball, subscribe to locked on fantasy basketball, wherever you get your podcasts. The guys that weren't struggling were legends at at UCLA when you think about Bill Walton and, and Kareem and I mean, so many others, Reggie Miller, Don McLean, what, what was, what were some of the great stories that, that you heard coach about, about um, Lou Alcindor and, and Bill Walton from their, their playing days at UCLA? Well, so interesting when you, you know, talk to John Wood, he'd have interesting, you know, anecdotal stories about players for instance, you know, I asked him about past teams, and he was very careful. You know, he said the first was special because, like a first child, it's it's memorable. Uh, it's new territory, and uh, your last is memorable uh, for a different reason uh, because it's your last team. You know, so similar to your first baby and your last baby, uh, those two, the the first chapter and the last chapter in a book, or the 
first scene in a great film and the last scene in a good film. Uh, but he did mention things like when I tried to get him to be more specific, you know, that Mike Warren, he felt was the smartest player he ever coached on the floor and would cite the remarkable numbers, you know, of X amount of games without a turnover. I want to say it might be 14 games without a turnover. Uh, the equivalent of oh. you know, an NFL quarterback not having an interception in 14 games. So uh, he mentioned it. Keith Wilkes, as he called him, uh, later Jamal Wilkes, was the most pleasant individual that he ever coached. Just his bearing, his demeanor was so pleasant, and his humility and his grace and kindness uh, really stood out to Coach Wood. And he said, as a result, it made Keith Wilkes as pleasant a player uh, of any that he ever coached. And uh, he said, you know, Lewis, later Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, was the most thought-provoking player he ever coached. He gave this great example of how he'd written the book. And one of the chapters was how you handle players or handling players. And uh, Lewis came to him and said, Coach, I'm surprised this new book that you've written, that you have handling and players, you know, or handling and people. Because maybe it was called handling people. And Lewis said, you don't handle people. You, know, you handle objects. He goes, but you work with people. And so in the next edition of the book, Coach Wood changed the chapter to working mm. with people as opposed to handling people. And obviously that was such an interesting time. One of the things that to me makes Wood so unique is, you know, he was coaching first at Dayton High School in Kentucky as an English teacher to coach, then at South Bend Central High School in Indiana as an English teacher to coach. Then he was at Indiana State, which was a teacher's college at the time, a Division II school. It wasn't the same as the Sycamores with Larry Bird. They grew into becoming that program, but Coach Wood was with them when they were Division II. He also was in the service at one point before coming to UCLA for that 27-year run. And it wasn't, his, it wasn't until he was 53 years old uh, that's when he won his first championship. But from 53 years old to 65, he won 10 out of 12, seven in a row, four undefeated seasons, and 88 straight wins. But he was working at his craft at Dayton High School, South Bend Central High School, Indiana State. He had that life experience, which is a curriculum in and of itself by Canada Service with the Navy, in terms of where Coach Wood served our country, and then coming to UCLA. So he was coaching high school kids and GI Bill guys that came back from the war at Indiana State and early at UCLA. Uh, then there's the Korean War, uh, the Vietnam War, also the sexual revolution, uh, the anti-establishment anti uh, you know, generation, the movement, uh, the sexual revolution, the drug experimentation, you know, uh, element that was in play, uh, you know, uh, women's rights, the, the whole feminist movement as well. And Coach Wood was in the midst of all of that, uh, in the political unrest you know, in our country, late 60s, early 70s. So to me, it shows uh, his flexibility. Uh, it's what made him uh, unique was that with different generations, think about that, you know, World War II to Vietnam, and then all the things going on during civil rights that he was still able to mold teams, bring them
bring them together and work in a cohesive manner to achieve at the highest level uh, in the history of sport. Let's, let's face it, there's no equivalent uh, to what Coach Wood did uh, on the men's side. What Gino Ariyama has done at, at UConn is, is the closest uh, to Coach Wood's run. But uh, I think it shows resourcefulness and ingenuity and flexibility and how he could adapt. And a lot of people don't realize when he was at UCLA in the spring, he would audit a psychology class because he knew he was continuing to coach 18 to 22-year-olds hmm. while he was getting older. So you know, the people he worked with were the same age, 18 to 22, but he was moving into his you know, 50s and then his 60s and sort of bridged that gap. Uh, he made great choices in terms of hiring assistant coaches uh, that could help the Denny Crumbs, the, the uh, you know, Gary Cunninghams. And then uh, he also was taking these psychology courses, auditing them, sitting in on these wonderful lectures of some of the best psychology teachers because he knew that the key to continuing to sustain success was knowing people and, and approaching it uh, with fresh and original ways, methods of motivation and how to best connect. And in particular, during what was happening in the 60s and early 70s, uh, brilliant on his part to kind of stay ahead and to help better navigate, uh, because he obviously is from the Midwest and had a certain set of values and, and led a life you know, based on kind of old school virtues, but he also had to stay open to and see things through a wider angle lens because he was coaching young people that were going through uh, things at that age as our country was also going through a dramatic shift. And uh, that's genius to me and what really, I view, separates uh, Coach Wood among coaches. Yeah, and he's coaching in L.A., and he's he's essentially creating this cultural movement in its own right, what the UCLA basketball program was. Quickly, I'm curious, you, you mentioned him and, and how he came up through his craft. I'm curious, just when you meet Coach Wooden, and how would you describe what it's like just just person to person to be like in his presence? Well, you know, for starters, his interest in ideas and in language were unusual for coaches. And so, you know, he'd rather talk about Martin Luther King or, you know, Winston Churchill or Mother Teresa, who was his favorite most inspiring human because her life was dedicated to those in need. And uh, it was about service and poverty. And so uh, she was the most inspiring figure to coach with. And Abraham Lincoln was his favorite American. And so he had lots of Lincoln books and a great ability to you know, pull a quote. And a few of my favorites are the greatest thing we can do for those we love is to not do for them what they're capable of doing for themselves. The greatest thing to do for those we love is to not do for them what they're capable mm. of doing for themselves. And that's really about parenting, teaching, coaching, leadership, self-reliance, and knowing we can't always be there as a parent, a teacher, a coach, or a leader. At some point, that young person that we're mentoring, that we care about, that we love, has to have their own self-reliance. And so that fine line of, you know, being there for a young person, but also allowing enough struggle 
so that you don't become a crutch and cripple their potential growth or at least getting closer to the full expression of their potential. And uh, the greatest thing, you know, a mother and father could do for their children is to love one another, uh, to show their parents what love, uh, to show their children what love looks like. The greatest thing a mother and father could do for their children is to love one another, to respect one another. And young people are watching and observing. Even when they pretend like they're not, um, they're, you know, still observing. And, and that's, in my view, too, you know, the, the, this form of teaching, right, is, is leading by example. And so with Coach Wooden, you know, you might ask a basketball question, as I did when I was younger, uh, first time around him. You know, I wanted to hear about the full court press or the high post offense. He would somehow take it from, you know, a specific question about basketball, and he would broaden it and somehow using metaphor and parallels and similes uh, break down something that was much greater uh, than the, you know, the high post offense or, or the full court press. Now, he could go into details uh, on, you know, any aspect of basketball and break it down with the best of them. But I could tell he'd prefer to talk about Cervantes or to quote Walt Whitman, you know, or to read a poem that he received from Swen Nader and, uh, or to recite, you know, uh, something from the Bible, uh, scripture, uh, or tell a story about Abe Lemons, who was one of the more entertaining coaches in the history of the game. Coach Wood had a very uh, wry sense of humor. He loved Bob Newhart as well in terms of his style of humor and would watch a lot of the reruns of uh, the Bob Newhart show. So uh, interesting, you know, he also liked to talk about baseball, big fan of baseball. And at one point was actually even offered, I think the Pittsburgh Pirates might have offered him the manager's job uh, back in the day. And wow. obviously the Lakers, I think under Jack Kent Cook also offered him the Lakers job at one point. Uh, so he was, you know, just a, a fascinating person beyond sport. And what's so interesting, again, is, you know, I think part of that is informed by his success came late in his career from 53 to 65. And so he had that great balance. One of his favorite poems was Kipling's If, because it was about balance. And it's a poem, a father to his son. And basically, I won't ruin it for you, but and you guys have probably already read it coming up in one of your English classes, but it really, to me, is emblematic of Coach Wooden's approach as a teacher, which was balance, you know, never to be in the peaks or valleys and don't respond to a loss, you know, by being overly dejected and don't get too big for your britches after a win, but instead come back to work wanting to improve and uh, using basketball as a way to learn these important traits, characteristics, uh, virtues, as I mentioned earlier, values that sustain us beyond sport. But basketball is a wonderful way in a team environment, a family environment, to learn these really important fundamentals that prepare us for life beyond basketball. Lastly, Coach, did you ever interview for an MBA job? You know, the only positions uh, that inquire, the only the only teams in acquire were the Clippers and Detroit Pistons. But it was in my second, third year at 
UCLA and Arn Tellum, I think who had relationships with the Clippers and worked for them, you know, just a brief conversation. Uh, I met with Donald Sterling one time. Um, but to be honest, you know, I felt UCLA for me was a better job and the pro thing uh, wasn't something that I aspired to, uh, but I have lots of friends that are doing well in the NBA. Obviously, a number of our players that moved on to the mm-hmm. NBA and still have players like uh, Trevor Reza and Jakar Sampson, Reese Harkless, my guy St. John, they're still in the NBA as well. And Trevor somehow keeps, <laughs> this is an 18th year, how many years has Trevor been in the NBA? But uh, pretty remarkable. But... All right, well, I know that I've enjoyed watching on TV, and, and I know Adam is really treasures your personal and and professional relationship as well. And we really do appreciate the time. Best of health to you and happy holidays. No problem. Enjoyed it. So just imagine if Bob Myers had rode crew at UCLA instead of, instead of walking on, it could end up being one of the great what ifs. You know, when I finally get around to doing my what if book or, or podcast, you can be a part of it if you want to Noah. I know you're not too busy. Otherwise, but that really could be. I mean, this idea that Bob Myers—I I love the idea that that Lavin had to say to him, "I think you're going to be busy as a UCLA basketball <laughs> player. I think you're going to be a little too busy to to row crew and participate in other intramural sports." But so, so you and Lav go back to ESPN. Yeah, I I first met him when he was actually the first time I was ever on with him. I, I did a radio interview at one point. Very early on in my career, somebody asked me to be on their show to break down the NCAA tournament. And they said, hey, it's going to be you and Steve Lavin talking about some of the regions. And honestly, it was one of those like crazy kicks for me. Like, wow, I'm on with Steve Lavin. This is going to be a Like, I felt like I had made it. And, uh, you know, it was a different time in my life. I was, pr- I was pretty young and, and was excited about the opportunity. But he was a nice guy to me then. Years later, we, we end up linking up at ESPN. It was awesome being around Lab then. Just one of the nicest people. He'll come down, pick up your tab at the at the ESPN CAF without knowing you just because it's late night. And he's that kind of person with that generosity. And then uh, spent time together at, at Pac-12. But my, my favorite Lab story is that I ended up one night doing a, a podcast interview with him years ago. It goes for a couple hours. And I realize as the night is amazing. We're sitting there. He's smoking cigars we're drinking we're, we're, we're drinking wine having a good time it, like at his uh at his place in downtown san francisco and talking to all those you know stories he was just ruminating about here you know wooden and, and his experiences with gene katie and everything winning national championship and then we're a couple hours into it realized that we have an issue with the recording went a couple hours with him so then he says i'm panicking because I can't believe this experience. He's there. People are showing up while we're doing the interview and stuff at his place. You know, some wine, some all, yay, all that. He's just a, he's just a, a character. And he, so he says to me, oh, well, that's no big deal. Let's just do it again. I'm like, I don't have a couple more hours to spend. I've been at your place for hours now, but we, we still did recorded some. I never checked my phone, Noah. Best part about it. I get in the car like, wow, what a great night. Got to hear all these amazing stories. Lab, such a good guy. I get in my car. I check my phone and my wife is like, are you alive? Like freaking out. It's it's nighttime. I haven't checked in in hours. I told her I was just doing a quick interview with Steve Lavin and 
not much as quick when the two of us are getting together talking as much as we do. He's a he's a good man. He's a good man. Nice to be able to talk to those good people, especially in the times we're living in. This is All true. right, Frank Isola, unable to join us on today's program. On Instagram, we're at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. We really should be more active on Instagram. Yeah, we got to get on that. That's, you know what? New don't Year's say that's your, no, no, don't, don't, mm, don't say it. No, it's the podcast New Year's resolution, not your uh, New Year's resolution, not mine. I know your, I know your pet peeves. You don't like New Year's resolutions and you don't like when, People say, hey, that really puts things into perspective. Yeah, it depends on depends on what it is. Yeah. Adam's on Twitter at Naismith Lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. What I really don't like, actually, is when people friend me on Facebook, who I just, I don't know at all. I, I don't know. Do you ever send them a note? Do you ever, if, when someone does that and they send you a friend, Facebook friend request, do you ever hit them back and say, because this is my move, I just go, do we know each other? And it's funny because a lot of times, oh, no, I, I don't know you, but you, you, you're friends. With my, my no, how, about, how about you hit me on LinkedIn? Does that help? <laughs> I mean, can we do it that way? The difference is I still say yes. I'm like, yeah, sure. Of course you do. Of course you do. And then they're, <laughs> next thing you know, they're in your wedding. You know, of course you do. <laughs> of course you do. Check out everything else on the Lockdown Podcast Network. Lockdown NBA is five days a week. The national program rotating cast of hosts. Lockdown Fantasy Hoops, Josh Lloyd. I mean, everything sounds better coming from an Australian. So even if your fantasy team stinks, probably help you feel better. Hollinger and Duncan. John Hollinger, Nate Duncan, their front office analytic take. And Lockdown Bets. Time to win some cash. That'll help out in the new year. And your team every day, all 30 teams every day here on the Locked On Podcast Network. If you enjoyed what you listened to today, or even if you didn't, still click five stars and tell us how much you enjoyed it on Apple Podcasts. We'd appreciate it. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best. <laughs>